Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hey, what's up, everyone? We are bringing you a new episode of Medicus today. I'm your host, Neil Sethi, and I'm here with my co-host. This is Alec. And today, you guys are in for a treat because our guest is an attending physician who plays an active role in medical education, and he is here to talk to us about just that and his specialty of medpeds. And as someone who has gotten the opportunity to work with him firsthand, I can be the first to tell you that if there was anybody that you want by your side and teaching you how to care for patients and being the best physician that you can be, it's definitely this guy right here. So with that said, I'm pleased to welcome... Dr. Durhammer. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. With that kind of introduction, you can invite me back as many times as you want. <laughs> and we would love to have you as many times as you want to come. So how are you doing, Dr. Durhammer? I'm doing great. Thanks. Could you just uh, introduce yourself and tell our listeners why you decided to become a physician, what your role is in uh, medical education here at Loyola? Sure. So uh, the story my mom tells is that we were walking out of the pediatrician's office when I was nine, and I looked over at her and said, Mom, I I think I'm going to be a doctor. And she just said that I never changed my story. So it's always been in my mind. It's always been my path, and I took a lot of steps to to get here. Uh, Going through the process has only uh, reinforced something that I developed a passion for at a very young, unknowing age. I don't think I realized what medicine really meant when I was nine, uh, but I love it. I can't imagine a job better suited for me uh, and a career and a profession and a calling that uh, is just so valuable to me. My role here as a patient care provider, I really have three main areas that I deliver care One is in the inpatient general medicine wards. The other is the general pediatrics wards on the inpatient side. And then uh, in the outpatient center uh, for primary care. Mm -hmm. So that was basically your aha moment when you were younger and in the doctor's office. And you're like, "Eh, this is pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it it just, they they seemed so knowledgeable and... Uh, comforting at the same time. They just sort of managed everything, took everything in stride. When I was in high school and I had started to, to think a little bit more seriously about my path, uh, I ended up getting to shadow that same pediatrician in the clinic. And back in those days when the primary care doctors would more often follow their patients into the hospital when they were admitted, we did rounds in the hospital together. That was really my first opportunity to see what that was like. And uh, it just got me even more fired up for it because I thought it was fantastic. And then as a medical student, that was when I really started to learn that you could be this thing called a teaching physician. And so um, developing that interest has led me down the path that got me here. And so now at Stretch, I get to not only get be involved in residency education and, and the, the residency program itself for medpeds and pediatrics and internal medicine, but uh, I get to do a lot of teaching in the med school, meet you guys, mold the malleable minds of the preclinical med students. And uh, the patient-centered medicine course is really uh, one of my main administrative responsibilities in, on the undergraduate side of things for medical education. 
And so teaching patient care skills and clinical skills like examining people, talking to human beings, uh, interpreting EKGs is really great foundational stuff. Uh, Complementing that by participating in the, the Stritch Pathophysiology course called Mechanisms of Human Disease really is a great opportunity to be the first one to share with you guys the clinical perspective and the relevance of all that basic science work that you've done, usually in undergrad and definitely in your first year of med school to get to that point. And um, I think that those are, are really easy ways for me to be in touch with you guys. Uh, parts of my involvement in Stritch that I wouldn't have envisioned 10 years ago uh, include being on different committees within the medical school. I chair the Technical Standards Review Committee, where I get to be part of a, um, an administrative group that reviews the academic accommodations for students with disabilities, uh, which actually blends in well for somebody in my field because working with kids and adolescents and adults who may have special needs, uh, it's kind of neat to see at every level of education that becomes a very relevant conversation. And being involved in educational administration also opens the door for learning about the mechanics of even things like how schools are accredited. So when the accrediting body for medical schools, the LCME, came through a couple years ago, uh, got to take a real active role in the different working groups that were a part of that process too. So you really deconstruct the curriculum and and analyze all the, the main objectives of the, of the institution, and uh, that was really rewarding as well. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you mentioned, you know, your role in medical education, because when people think of doctors, they don't really think about academic medicine. So I just wanted to touch upon that. Like, how has medical education changed since, you know, you were in medical school? You know, the, I think the thing that has changed most is the technology. Um, as I was kind of reflecting on my own med school experience, one of the uh, memories that came to mind was going down in the basement at the hospital where I was doing my internal medicine clerkship, where the library was, and hauling out this thing called a book, uh, where I had to flip through pages to find a chapter on a relatively new term called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and amass the information, write it down, use my copy card to Xerox the pages from the book and the articles that I found to then turn around and give a presentation to my team on the medicine side. I think that one of the hugest benefits for trainees these days and and medical students as well is the virtually limitless access to information that you guys have. Interestingly, I think that is also one of your greatest burdens because there is so much available to you and there are so many continuous revolutions of thought in medicine that the filtering process and knowing what's valuable that you can stumble upon through Googling and knowing uh, uh, how to find responsible, peer-reviewed answers to the questions that you might have clinically is a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it obviously seems like a double-edged sword, <laughs> as I can tell you that <laughs> firsthand. So with that said, what do you think is a possible shortcoming or a problem in medical education that you see today? You know, I think um, one of the biggest challenges I see and one of the the shortcomings, and I think we've all contributed to this, is that there is tremendous focus at the medical student level um, and tremendous anxiety in my experience about this behemoth called step one. 
Um, I think the idea of teaching toward a test has never been a stronger message from our learners. And um, I, I think that 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 comes from the top down. Obviously, there's there's a rationale for why students are terrified about how they're going to do on step one and what the implications are from that. Uh, but I really do think it's gotten to this epidemic level where it's actually impeding some of the more humanistic educational process and the holistic education that I think best prepares you guys for getting out into the wards and, and being in the clinical environment. So how do you how do you create that balance? Because you mentioned talking about step one, and there's there's a distinction made between preparing students to do well on step one and being better clinicians. And that means doing better on their rounds. And so explain that di- distinction a little bit. Like, how do you create that balance? Yeah, I think, I think the first thing that can be really successful, in my experience, is just uh, demonstrating value and making it clear to the learners what the, the relevance is of what they're learning. I think if you can get more bang for your buck and learn something about patient care that will also answer a question successfully on a test. That is the best of both worlds. But, you know, sometimes we just have to remind ourselves that uh, there is a reason why we, we try to understand the physiology or the action behind something and not just the answer. I think one of the, one of the things we didn't touch on about more modern medicine is that these days there are even more areas of gray and fewer areas of black and white. And black and white feels a lot like what we get tested on, but gray is the reality of caring for patients that, you know, not everybody fits perfectly and neatly into an algorithm. And so you have to develop judgment. And I think that a lot of that judgment is based on experience for sure, because medicine is an experiential process. There's tremendous power in experience. Um, But it's also one of deductive reasoning and analytical thinking. And I think you need a strong and broad foundation that goes beyond test questions uh, to have the understanding to really approach medicine in in the right way. So kind of like touching on the idea of um, experience as an important teaching tool. Um, There are a decent amount of medical schools that are now transitioning from taking step one. You know, the classic is doing the first two years, um, kind of like in the books, and then the two years clinical. And so a few medical schools nowadays are taking their step one after or in within their third year. So after they've maybe rotated on internal or surgery or some, some like some of those bigger rotations, do you think there's an advantage to that, or do you see any downside to that as well? You know, I, I will say this. When I, when I sat for my boards, and I, I specifically remember having this experience a number of times when I was sitting for my internal medicine boards, you picture patients in your head. Like, they ask a question about cardiac pathology, and you think of your patient with heart failure who you worked through the thought process on arriving at that very answer. So I think it would be impactful. I think any clinical experience that can make that book learning relevant and real um, is useful. So I, I don't 
I don't disagree with the philosophy at all. Just, you know, off the top of my head, shifting that time, I'd need to know a little bit more about what the other expectations are then. If you're taking step one later, that leaves less time for step two. And one of the things that we see very often is that step two scores really outpace step one scores. And that's actually a really positive thing. As a residency program director, I interpret that as someone who has embraced the clinical transition and gone from kind of the book knowledge phase to the the patient-centered phase and and really excelled. So um, it it would probably, I, I guess I'd have to see the data from those schools, but I imagine it impacts the number of students who would actually have step two scores available even by the time of, you know, the fall of their fourth year uh, because it would come right on the heels then of, of taking step one. So I, I don't know what the strategy is. I'm sure they've thought it through in the places that have implemented it. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure there's like pros and cons to both. And yeah. it's been scrutinized in medical education, I'm, I'm sure, as they kind of like transition or decide, is this better for our students or not? So, um, yeah, I just wanted to hear your opinion on it. Mm-hmm. So as a student, I think another challenge is transitioning to the clinic from preclinical, like we kind of touched on. Um, how do you work with students in that setting um, of that transition? Do you see them like grappling or struggling with anything? And I guess what's your experience with like seeing, seeing let's say, second-year students come all the way to clinic now? Yeah, I, there's a few, a few tips that I always give my students. Neil, you can look forward to this at the end of our year. It'll be the <laughs> second time you've heard it now. Looking forward to it. Um, to me, there's a few keys to success, to, to really crushing it when you get onto clerkships. And I hope that they're universal. I, I think that they are. I think the first one is you just have to be very prepared to work hard. You're going to be changing not just specialties, but literally like universes from month to month. And so you have to be pretty adaptable. I think that you want to be ready to demonstrate your own intellectual curiosity, um, trying to be less passive and more assertive, even with your own learning experience is really valuable. I encourage people to fake it till you make it. Act like you are going into every specialty while you're on that clerkship, and I think you'll convince yourself to to really energize the experience and the performance that you deliver. And I also encourage people to take initiative. And one of the the bigger things I've been trying to to change culture in a little bit around here is getting learners to reach out to their faculty, like their attendings, for example, even before they start the experience, to sit down together and set expectations, talk about what your career interests are, talk about what you're hoping to get out of the rotation or the clerkship with them, and then uh, being able to, to have them express to you what they see as a high-level performance, like how can you really demonstrate your ability to them the very best, and that way you hit the ground running. You know, I'll use for an example our inpatient pediatric experience in the more global pediatric clerkship. On average, it's about two weeks And so if you can imagine that you wait until the first day of that rotation to meet your team and share expectations and kind of get oriented to the environment, Um, you have other days where you might have didactic lectures for the clerkship overall that you're pulled away from the wards. You at Loyola uh, often have home visits, which is a really phenomenal experience, but one that is outside of your team experience. 
And then you've got these weekend things, and we're not going to make you be there 14 days in a row, so you'll have days off and other stuff. So you really whittle that down very quickly to what I would say is probably about eight full working days, like elbow to elbow with your team uh, on the wards. And so any moment of that that gets um, displaced or used up for, for other purposes is kind of shortening your overall experience. So why not hit the ground running from the very first second on day one as best as you possibly can? The other things that I recommend, there's two of them uh, for students. Number one, you guys are in learning environments which means that you're going to be evaluated, which means that there is an evaluation rubric somewhere. Look at it and see what people are grading you on. Like know what you're going to be assessed on. And there's a good chance that that will answer a number of your questions that you might have for someone. Like how do I do really well here? Well, let's look at the grading algorithm and we can see that the highest level of performance is someone who takes so much initiative that their patients start to identify them as their care provider. Boy, that's that sounds like something I'd really like to do. And now I know that I should feel empowered to do that because it's part of the grading scale. So you can learn a lot from the grading rubrics on, and I think that applies to not just your clerkship overall evaluations, but even how your H&P write-ups are evaluated or other things. Just look at what people are going to be paying attention to and allow yourself to tailor your own energy to that so that you, you've already done it very successfully. And then the, uh, the last thing I, I would mention is just taking initiative. And, and that kind of initiative includes things like, you know, review patients that aren't even your own. New patients get added to teams every single morning, and when you come in and you're starting to do your own chart review, if you've already kind of read about a patient and somebody has piqued your interest and the senior is there and starts to talk to the team about dividing up new patients for the day, you can say, hey, let me get this new patient with that cool new diagnosis. I haven't cared for somebody with that before, and I was reading a little in their chart. That's great, and that's always going to show well in your environment. The other thing is that you really should try to be assertive with seeking feedback, and you should try to be honestly open to feedback, and that's a big challenge for some of us because even though we're, we know that we're in a learning environment, we know that the formative experience and getting feedback on our performance is so central to our own development, we don't all wake up in the morning looking forward to the opportunity to hear what we didn't do as well as we could, and so being prepared for that and being really engaged and, and um, in the learning experience, I think, can be hugely valuable, no matter which rotation or clerkship you're on. It's interesting that uh, you spoke from a perspective of an evaluator. You know, you've been in attending for so many years, and I think it takes a certain emotional intelligence because you have to deal with students who have a variety of personalities, Right. And so there are certain students who become fixated, like, hey, you know, I want to go into ENT, I want to go into ortho. And then there's other people who are much more open to it. And speaking to many physicians, speaking to many students, I've gotten the vibe that those people who are open to a lot of other specialties and approach their rounds that way tend to be more successful. So just talk about, like, the personalities that are hard to deal with from your perspective and maybe some of the personalities that do best during the rounds. Yeah, you know, the, the I think there are a couple challenging or difficult learner types that, that you see more consistently. 
I've been really lucky in the clinical environment, maybe because I set the expectation out that I want them to fake their interest uh, to me as best as they can, like fool me into thinking that you're going into my field um, and people listen. Uh, But I don't tend to engage a lot of uh, disengaged or uninterested learners in the clinical environment. I know it exists, but I, I think part of my responsibility as the teacher is to, from the outset, get to know my learners a little bit and know what their background is or know what their interests are and try to make the experience relevant to them. You know, I can't assign every single, you know, ear infection to the student who wants to go into ENT, for example, but we can certainly talk about the relevance of those things and maybe offer that student the opportunity to provide some teaching to us on hearing evaluations or something else that would suddenly make it more relevant to their area of passion. Um, believe it or not, the, the uninterested learner I've encountered more often in my first and second year teaching experiences because I, I, I don't place blame. I, I recognize that you guys these days are continuously weighing, is what I'm doing right now more important than something else I could be focusing on? And often that that something is is perceived as whatever is propelling me toward a higher step one score. And so if something isn't feeling relevant to a learner, I'd say that that personality type who's willing to display that affect of disinterest, in my experience, uh, benefits from being very personally engaged and brought into whatever is going on. Um, And again, taking responsibility as the teacher to find some way to make it relevant uh, is actually a pretty rewarding challenge because then once you get that person's attention and then they're in and you know that they're hooked and they want to participate and they want to show that they're actively thinking and actively listening and you know that feels great on the the clinical side I think one of the one of the biggest challenges that that I have faced are, are the learners who are resistant to feedback and Resistance to feedback can be camouflaged a little bit. One tip that I would offer is if you find yourself starting a feedback conversation by saying, I am usually great and always looking for feedback, that's kind of a red flag for me because it tells me that you're about to give me some information that you're not willing to accept uh, that was provided to you as feedback. So don't try to sell yourself as as the best feedback recipient in the universe because that usually backfires a little bit. Being argumentative about feedback uh, is is a great opportunity to have a discussion about what feedback really is and the idea that feedback is really just one person's perception of you and not a, a decisive diagnosis of who you are. And the great thing about that when you reframe feedback as a perception is that perceptions can be altered. And if someone's perception of your performance differs greatly from what your own self-perception is, that's a great opportunity to say, all right, well, I know who I am and what I want to be and what I want to offer. What are the ways that I can you know, modify what I'm putting out there so that those evaluating me get the same perception that I have of myself? And in fact, for, for the, the person who is poorly responsive to feedback, one of the most useful strategies, which I honestly try to employ with every single feedback session that I conduct, is to collect a self-evaluation first to get a sense of 
you know, what, what a learner's self-awareness is and, and how on target they are, more often than not, uh, they will key into the very hot topic that I want to discuss with them. And there's no better way for me then to launch into that conversation than by saying, I couldn't agree with you more. You're right. I really think an area for us to focus on are your oral presentations. And so let's talk a little bit about what my perception is of, of your performance and, and try to see how we can align that with where you want to be. So how would you, um, like, let's say a medical student gets negative feedback. Obviously, they're not excited about that, right? But maybe that was from one resident or one attending, but a second resident or second attending had a much better, more positive experience with them. And so kind of coming with that, there's that whole subjectivity of these evaluations so to my understanding it's you have your shelf exams you have your your standard test that you take at the end of your rotation Um, but then you also have this subjective component of what resident or attending likes you i guess for a, a, a bad maybe not the right word for it but so what do you what do you think about the whole idea of evaluations being subjective and you kind of touching on how you can change your perception or attendings or residents can change your perception if you kind of accept that feedback. But that almost necessitates you evaluating yourself midway through. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, boy, there's a lot in that question. I I would, I would begin by saying that, uh, evaluation and feedback, uh, feedback in particular is really a continuous process. And so the best thing that you can do is be soliciting and receiving feedback all along the way, like walking out of a patient's room and saying, how, how did I do? How did that go? Finishing your presentation or your time on rounds and uh, welcoming some, some opportunities for modification so that all along the way you've been able to do that. For most of us who have a, a more extended period of time, like say a, that two-week period together in that learning relationship, having a midpoint feedback session can be really great because that's an opportunity to address those opportunities for growth and set some goals together for the second half of your time together. So I really encourage people to do that. And sometimes you have to ask, and and you will be rewarded for asking, I promise. You just have to make sure that you're clear about what it is you're you're expecting and what you're looking for the the first part that you talked about was an important one what do you do when there's a difference of opinion or a difference of perspective and what do you do with the outliers because we all get them you could get 100 evaluations and you know which one we're all drawn to right we're going to read 50 times over the one that's feels negative to us so my approach to that, there's a few things. Number one, it's one opinion. Um, that's one thing to consider. It's one in a grander scheme of the law of averages suggesting something different. You can certainly view it with that perspective. The second thing is you have to respect that everyone is allowed to have their own perspective and opinion. And then the third thing is that as a learner, the great opportunity for you is you get to choose. You're going to be bombarded with feedback. And at the end of the day, you decide what is relevant to you, what applies to you, and what you're going to carry forward. But with that, I would challenge everybody to really at least reflect for a minute on those outliers and say, all right, 
I don't really think this person was even close with, with what they saw, but was there any opportunity in this learning relationship for me to do something different the next time? You know, and even if you 100% disagree with what they provide to you, at least give it a moment's thought. You may ultimately dismiss it entirely, and I think that's okay. That's your learner privilege. You decide what's, what sticks. Um, but I'd at least give it a minute to, to just think what, what could have led to this, and are there any opportunities, even in this person who has a way-off perception. One of the ways uh, to address what I think you might be talking around a little bit is what happens if that one opinion impacts my entire global evaluation on a clerkship. One of the ways that in certain environments we try to fight that is by having the whole team sit down together to complete your evaluation so everyone is able to offer their perspective and then we com- we kind of create a more cumulative or well-rounded um, grading of the performance. And that really allows everybody to share their opinion. Whenever I'm in those sessions, we always make sure the intern shares their opinion first, then the senior resident, and then the attending chimes in. So that way you can't have anybody getting bullied into feeling the way that the most senior person in the room feels, for example. So I don't know if that answers some of what you were wondering. No, no it does. And it seems like it, that in that way, it seems like it's very structured, which is awesome. You know, I'm not sure how it is in other medical schools, but I feel like like you, you take specific steps to kind of eliminate that bias and, and make it as true, um, true of an evaluation as possible. So from a medical student perspective, I appreciate that. So that's great to hear. But, you know, it's something that we never really never really hear about and you see like oh you know i got some of the third and fourth years like i got a bad evaluation but i got a good one here you know like that they they just didn't know what they're doing or you know i just didn't have a good day with this person or um you know whatever so hopefully that doesn't that doesn't hurt me because i messed up today versus you know you know the whole entire time i was on the rotation so it is good it seems like it is a cumulative evaluation from each level that you work with so yeah, that's our goal. And, you know, we're all human beings and you're going to click with some people and some personalities just don't go well together. But, you know, Neil, you already mentioned one of my favorite concepts, the, the idea of emotional intelligence tells us that you can still flex some of that muscle and self-awareness and social awareness and other things to try to navigate even those personalities who you don't align with. I didn't, I didn't mention... Uh, this is one of my tips, but I, I meant to that uh, working well in a team is huge in medicine. There, there is no individual practicing as an island these days. And so having that ability to capitalize on the strengths of different members from different backgrounds with different abilities, all working for the same purpose is really important. And you're going to have plenty of experiences where you you may the only thing you have in common with someone you're working with is that you're both there to care for the same patient but that's a pretty good thing to have in common and you may find that that's even true with a caregiver of a patient you may find that it's true with the patient themselves uh, but as long as you can find that that big overarching shared goal i think that's what really unites us all and that helps us to overcome some of those differences that we might have I guess what we forgot to mention to our listeners was uh, you're actually the residency program director here at Loyola. Um, and so that was our diabolical plan all along. <laughs> uh, now we know what to do. <laughs> yeah. So you guys got all the inside details of 
how you guys should do well on your rotations. And uh, Dr. Dr. Durhammer was generous enough to uh, share all those details with you. But, you know, let's talk about Medpeds a little bit. You know, that is your specialty of choice. Why Medpeds? So I, I already mentioned that my inspiration was my own pediatrician when I was growing up. And I came to med school already knowing that I really enjoyed working with kids and teaching kids. And I'd had some volunteer experiences uh, up through college uh, that really reinforced that. And so I thought pediatrics was stood a good chance of being my final destination. And then I hit the first couple years of med school and was just amazed at the depth of knowledge that and those expectations that they had of us for for getting through that curriculum um, when we made the transition my first clerkship was internal medicine as a third year uh, I will be honest with you guys I was the first physician in my family I thought everything but dermatology was internal uh, so I didn't really know what internal medicine meant to be quite frank um, but then when I got on the rotation and saw what adult medicine really was and just how much it embraced all of the organ systems and all of the physiology and opened the door to all of the pathophysiology and all that great stuff, um, I really fell in love with it and, and getting to engage adults in their medical care and healthcare experiences just was incredible to me. Some of the relationships that I developed as a third-year student, when you have the opportunity to go back and sit down at the bedside and talk two, three, four times with your patient during the day just to learn their story, um, was really powerful. So then I was conflicted a little bit because I said, gosh, this internal medicine thing is pretty awesome, but I, I, I really do look forward to the opportunity to provide healthcare to kids. Uh, and I happened to have a couple MedPeds residents on my team, uh, on my third-year medicine clerkship, who said, well, fear not. Uh, there's this thing you can do where you can actually train in both and get board certified in both and practice both to whatever extent. And that just sounded like the perfect thing for me. As I learned more about MedPeds and, and the depth of the training, the, the idea that you got to do 24 months of pediatrics and 24 months of internal medicine, uh, the idea that, you know, because back then anything was possible. I didn't know if I might want to specialize. I knew I enjoyed procedures as I went further on through med school. And the idea that every pediatric fellowship and every internal medicine fellowship, and really even at that point, Every combined fellowship with adult and pediatric experience had been done. And so truly limitless opportunities for what you might end up doing uh, following your residency training. So I also knew that it was going to be rigorous. I knew it was hard, and I kind of dug that. Um, I will tell you that my final decision actually came down to choosing between either general surgery or medpeds as my training and uh, ended up going more of the direction of medpeds. Uh, there was a little bit of input offered by my then uh, newly engaged fiance, uh, who I met in med school. She suggested that she may not be as motivated to get married to someone who was a surgeon. So all you people going into surgery, there's, that's no dig on, on <laughs> surgery in general. That was my personal circumstance. We just want opinion, everybody. <laughs> And so, yeah, uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that it was the right choice for me. 
are there anything that you any, any kind of things that you dislike about medpeds um or that that weighed into your decision you know it sounded like you had like a pro and con list going from okay surgery and medpeds or um, whatever else you were deciding between so what was on i guess your con list for medpeds if there was any you know, the, the reality of it is that it's a four-year training program, and if you're really passionate about pediatrics and you know that for a fact and you could accomplish that in three years of residency, um, I could see that being a, a challenging hurdle to overcome for someone. Since I was comparing it with another extended-length program, that got negated fairly quickly for me. I wasn't really discouraged by the length of training, and in fact, the idea that it had such depth on both sides was ended up being a real positive for me. But I, I know uh, that for some at the at the student level, that's a real deterrent. I've already been through college. Now I've been through four years of med school, kind of looking forward to getting the show on the road and getting a real job and being done with all this. So three-year training programs could be more attractive to, to some. I think the, the, the other thing that you had to consider was what you would be facing in terms of some of the stereotypes of the, of the field um, and having to define yourself, the threat of rather than being seen as double the physician, you being seen as half the physician on either side um, is something that I think uh, you have to accept and you have to develop your own confidence about what it is you really bring to the table as a patient care provider um, so that you don't fall victim to some sort of inferiority complex because I think in MedPeds we earn our stripes. I think we put the time in, we do the work, um, and you're every bit as board certified as the categorically trained person standing next to you, and they are they are your peer, and I think the opportunity to share uh, experiences with each other in that way is, is a, real, a real positive, ultimately. I can almost see, too, with MedPeds, you know, it's the transition from the early years of life to the later years of life I feel like that's where medpeds shines almost because you have that ability to evaluate someone's health for the entire spectrum of their life so I think that's also another positive that you can kind of see within your training as well even though there are those like potential stereotypes of it yeah we we really embrace that age group and you can imagine when you're hitting the the upper limit of the peds world and you're at the lower limit of the internal medicine world that that's that's a a transition zone that is is not necessarily in in everybody's comfort place and for us we we really embrace that group you know the the adolescent visit uh, navigating that transition uh, into adult care is actually a huge area of work for med, a lot of MedPeds scholars. And so lots and lots of work has been done on helping to facilitate that transition. And not just for kids with special health care needs, but even just regular, healthy teenagers who need to figure out next steps in taking responsibility for their own care Everybody has a lot that they need to prepare for. And kind of, this is just like something that I've been thinking of recently, but, you know, if let's say you want to go into primary care and you like medpeds, you like internal medicine, you like pediatrics, you like family practice or family medicine, how do you kind of choose between those four? Well, some of it might depend on the type of practitioner that you want to be. 
Family medicine has some really well-known, just amazing rural health fellowship programs or even training opportunities. Uh, MedPeds programs, just by their nature, tend to be uh, more located in academic medical centers. And so if somebody feels strongly about going back to be their small town doc and they really want a specific rural health training experience, family medicine could be very appealing. Uh, For somebody who wants to stay engaged in deliveries, uh, we don't train in deliveries. We train in newborn resuscitation, uh, but not deliveries themselves. We we provide medical care to pregnant women, um, but if you want to be in the delivery room on that side of the room, family medicine would be appealing to you. And maintaining OR time, you know, there's some surgical training involved in, in family medicine, so that could be a deciding factor. Region of the country might play a role for you. Family medicine programs, um, uh, by proportion, tend to be very strong and highly populated on on the west side of the country. Um, There are MedPeds programs out that direction too, but I think family medicine really has a foothold on the all-ages practitioner in that direction. I think that if you're if you're still weighing out your options on whether or not you're going to subspecialize, MedPeds ends up being very desirable because of the limitless opportunities there. I already mentioned there are some fellowship opportunities that are only available to family medicine graduates. Uh, there are some uh, fellowship opportunities that are only available to pediatric internal medicine or MedPeds graduates, so you might want to have some mindfulness of that. And uh, hospital medicine, uh, which is definitely a growing area of interest for a lot of of graduates from generalist professions like family medicine, pediatrics, internal medicine, medpeds, um, actually exist for all of them. I, I have a friend out west, actually, who graduated from a family medicine residency program and delivers high complexity inpatient care as a hospitalist out in California. So um, I think those options, there's, there's more similarities than differences, but you might just find certain elements just a little bit more appealing to you as an individual, and that might be what, what makes it the right choice. Okay, so, you know, I'm just linking back to the whole medical education. Do you actively recruit residents, or you kind of just look over applications after they've been submitted? You know, the here uh, at school, at our medical school, we try to be a visible presence. So in terms of active recruitment, just making our specialty known uh, is certainly something that we try to give attention to. I think there's a lot of MedPeds faculty at Loyola, and so there are lots of opportunities for our students to engage them and have mentoring experiences or, or role modeling demonstrated by MedPeds trained people. As far as the, the recruitment process goes, it's quite structured, and so uh, we certainly make ourselves available and visible through the application system. Uh, we stay active with probably the biggest MedPeds organization uh, for residents, which is the NMPRA, or National MedPeds Resident Association. Uh, they have a great website that they maintain at medpeds.org um, that is a really good recruitment tool for us because it answers a lot of the common questions that students might have about our specialty. Once you get into the application process, though, uh, I certainly counsel a lot of the, the Stritch students specifically who might be seeking a position in medpeds. 
but we operate within the confines of the of the system that exists, which means that we welcome all applications, we review all applications in detail from the pool of applicants that are available to us. We select a subset who we interview, uh, and from those interviewed, we create a rank list in the same way that medical students create their rank list, and then. Uh, we hope for the best when whatever the computer algorithm is that links those rank lists together does its magic in March. We all just wait excitedly for the results. Uh, kind of in your question was, was something about how actively we pursue applicants for residency. And the truth is that a lot of the language we use these days is rather bland. That's the word I use with a lot of our applicants because... The idea is that you want that fit to be as natural as possible. And the more coercive you might be for getting someone into your program doesn't necessarily guarantee the rightness of fit or the success of that individual. I've already talked about how hard you have to work as a med student. you got to work pretty hard as a resident, too. And if you end up in a program for the wrong reasons or under false pretenses, especially for us, that's four years of your life you're committing to uh, trying to be a square peg in a round hole. So the perspective that the AAMC has taken on this is really to discourage a lot of the communication outside of the interview experience and to keep us from that that threat of, of being disingenuine to each other on both sides of the table for the applicants and for the residency programs. So it's not a gag order. It doesn't mean that you can't have questions answered about the program, and it certainly doesn't deter us from sharing all the wonderful qualities of our program as the applicants come through. Uh, but we really try to allow uh, the individuals to gravitate to the locations that are right for them, if that makes sense. So this is actually like a perfect time to transition into our match advice section. So let's say, you know, I'm committed going to MedPeds, like I want to go to MedPeds, or I wanted to go to MedPeds the entire time that I've been in a, med a medical student. So in general, how should a medical student structure their four years to set themselves up best to match into MedPeds? So our field, by its very nature values people who are, and, and I think attracts people who are, number one, really committed to patient care. I, I didn't throw this statistic out, but, you know, the vast majority of our trainees go on to provide care to adults and kids, and about 75% of us do it in a generalist capacity. So that could be primary care, hospital medicine, global health, uh, or research, or uh, other things. There's about a quarter of them that end up specializing, and so fellowships are, are definitely a, a part of the, the future for our trainees. But I also mentioned that those can go on to be in adult care, in pediatric care, or combined. So we really value people who are committed to caring for patients uh, from all backgrounds, um, all ages, and truly just, just dedicated to uh, being a care provider. And so I think as a student, being able to demonstrate that commitment is great. Volunteer activities, every med school has innumerable volunteer opportunities for you guys to get into committees, to get into volunteer work in the community. Most med schools that I have seen have some student-run free health clinic 
which can be a great way to just reinforce your own perspective and the, and the passion that you have, but also demonstrating a commitment to caring for others. Our field, uh, certainly at this institution, but I think across the country, tends to attract uh, people with strong leadership potential. And so anything that you can do to have not just a membership, but actually take an active role in a committee that you're on or a student organization is great. Um, you know, certainly we don't just look for someone who has a hundred things listed as their volunteer activities. Uh, but if even you have just one or two that you've, you can really speak in depth about your commitment to it and the leadership role that you've taken, you've taken, I think that shows really well. Research is not necessarily a requirement for us. There are plenty of folks who go on to have academic careers and perform bench research or clinical research or translational research. Uh, you don't have to clone a gene to be a good candidate for MedPeds residency, so hopefully that's good news. Oh, thank God. Uh, <laughs> it never hurts to have a, an honest commitment to a, a scholarly activity, though. So if you have research experience or if you, for example, at, at Stritch participate in a really organized research program, here we call it the STAR program. I'm sure they have them at, at every school, but, um, you know, demonstrating intellectual curiosity and an ability to navigate the research world, work well in that kind of team, that will never hurt you. But it's certainly not an expectation, and not from my perspective and, and the perspective of the other program directors that I've gotten to know. Away rotations comes up a lot, like do I have to audition or, or go to places? Well, it's impossible. You know, there's a finite number of, of programs across the country. There's 79 MedPeds programs, but there's fewer months than that, as I understand it, in the calendar year. So you're not going to get to all of them. Um, and truly, away rotations, the value these days is more for you as the learner than I think it is for your standing as an applicant. Everybody just recognized the financial limitations of that, that, you know, it's a very formal process at most schools these days to even get approval for away rotations. And so I think if you get a chance to go to a place or two, get an opportunity to see a healthcare environment that differs from your home base, that just makes you a more informed applicant. And so, again, I think for your own growth, they're really valuable uh, does not make or break it uh, as an applicant, and, uh, certainly not at this program, and I, I don't think across the country. People ask a lot about grades and board scores. I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. If you're going to elect to train in a residency program that's going to require you to sit for two pretty tough tests at the end of it, you probably should have some ability to do well in standardized tests. It does not mean that you have to have a perfect score on step one and step two, but uh, you should at least be able to demonstrate that you're comfortable in a testing environment. And if standardized tests aren't your strong suit, well, be honest with yourself and, and recognize that you're going you're gonna to have to give that much more commitment to being successful in the long run. Um, not that it's impossible. And I don't really think of MedPeds as a competitive field from the perspective of needing through the roof step scores to, to qualify for it. It's just by the limitation that we only have about 350 spots per year across the whole country. And so, you know, by, from that perspective, there are many more comparatively 
medicine spots or pediatric spots and even family medicine spots. So you just have to, again, just be realistic. But if you're, if you're really committed to the concept um, and you're really, really interested in getting that level of rigor in your training, I think anything is possible. So there's, there's no wrong moves uh, as long as you're just generally mindful. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's going to be people above the averages, there's going to be people below the averages, and there's going to be people who are average. You know, I've always been of the opinion, and you echoed it, that that should never limit your, you know, interest into going into a certain uh, specialty. So for that person who may not have the strongest board score, how do you think that they should, you know, go about applying, how, how they should prepare for interviews, yeah, I think because there's there's a finite lump number of even interview spots available. If you're someone who has scored well below the the average on on those standardized tests, think about broadening uh, your your interview search. Again, be realistic with yourself and and truly consider the possibility of applying to categorical programs in internal medicine or pediatrics. You may even consider applying to family medicine programs just to broaden your options a little bit. In your application, uh, just to demonstrate that self-awareness, if you're someone who has struggled on uh, standardized tests and knowing that you're applying to a specialty that has two of them waiting for you at the end, I think it's pretty reasonable to account for that somewhere, like in your personal statement. You know, here are the things that I learned from my experience taking USMLE step one. And here are the things I know about myself as a learner and as a test taker that I plan to apply to my preparation as a resident. You know, it, if it's who you are and, and that's your data, own it. Um, and so be honest with yourself, but, but take ownership of, of the experiences that you've had so far. If you struggled in a particular class or had to remediate on your way through or extended school for any number of reasons, just take ownership of it and, and be forthcoming with what, as a learner, uh, that has done to impact you and, and your future approach to being a learner, for example. What stands out to you on residency application? You know, there's a couple of things, and boy, I'm, I'm deep into it right now, so I've been, I've been reading a lot of them uh, over the last month. A couple of things that stand out. Um, it really does catch your attention when somebody has, has had a leadership position in an organization, um, like a student group or, or other things. If you're someone who took a gap year or a couple gap years, I, I'm always impressed when someone has had the same responsibility for that entire gap time. So uh, you were growing, you were exploring, and yet you still demonstrated a commitment within that time. Uh, I saw somebody the other day, the first time ever, who actually had about three years as an ER scribe. I've never seen anybody go longer than a calendar year in that. That was a really cool conversation to hear about how that individual was so committed to that role and grew in it, got up to uh, a managing position, got up to an educating position for other scribes. I mean, and that was just a, a gap time experience. And, and that individual really, really jumped in with both feet. And I thought that was quite impressive. Personal statements, I think on average, they, they don't, to, to the program directors I've talked to, on average, they neither 
raise nor lower your standing um, as uh, as an applicant. But if somebody writes one that really catches your attention and really resonates with you and really sounds like they've they've very deeply reflected on uh, the experience that's waiting for them, um, I've I've certainly read a few that were quite moving. Is it possible to construct a personal statement that harms you? It is, um, and this would apply to every aspect of your application. We're detail-oriented folks, and so meticulousness is another thing I pay attention to. If I see typos in an application or uh, you know, a lot of uh, grammatical incorrection, uh, things that don't flow well in a personal statement, it's not readable, for example, in other elements of the application, if there's just unexplained blanks um, that people left. I don't know if it's because you don't have an answer to that question, you didn't see that question, uh, you're a conscientious objector from responding to the question. There's just nothing to tell us why uh, it's incomplete. And so I would say don't leave blanks. Be very meticulous in the the way that you organize the grammar that you use. You know, those little points are, are sometimes the distinguishing characteristics from one application to another. And if somebody has taken the time to really perfect that application, that speaks somewhat to just how seriously they're taking the process, right? You're not rushing through. You're not just slapping it together, but you're trying to create a really uh, finely constructed product, and I think that that's valuable. Letters of recommendation comes up a lot. Is there the perfect person to ask for a letter? I would say for a specialty like ours, where the type of clinician that you are going to be is really relevant, that having evaluators who can speak to your prowess in the clinical environment is extremely helpful. I've read amazing letters from uh, faculty advisors or longitudinal relationships. Some schools, uh, there, there might be uh, a clinical experience that extends from the first year all the way through the fourth year with one particular mentor, and then that mentor writes this great letter. I've seen research mentors write letters that were very strong as well, uh, but what's going to connect with me the best is someone speaking to your your overall experience and, and the type of care provider that you are, because that's what I'm looking for, right? I want people who are going to excel in engaging patients. And I think letter writers can speak to that often. And so that means more to me than necessarily how many credentials are after the person's name or if they're the most world-renowned person in something or other. Um, I'll be honest with you, I've read some letters from from really well-established, preeminent physicians, and you know, some people end up writing more about the work they've done than the experience they've had with the student, just so you have a good sense of how the perspective that they offer. I think the intention is good, like here's what I do, and here's my experience with students, so you know the background I'm coming from when I share my recommendation of the student, but... Sometimes it goes a little too far and it ends up just sounding like their own CV rather than, than an assessment of the student's performance. So um, I think just a good established rapport with someone goes the farthest for generating the right kind of letter. So you talked about fit and how you work your due diligence in finding the perfect people 
you know, the, the ideal residents, and you've certainly had a lot of residents come and go through your program. Have you ever had a moment you were like, hmm, kind of regret having this guy here? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, you you can't learn everything about everybody uh, in a one-day interview with them, and not everything is captured in uh, in an application. I think what I what I have more often found are opportunities than than regret. So, an opportunity to help someone build their communication skills, or uh, certainly some opportunities to work with folks on on becoming better recipients of feedback. I think those things happen. You know, I think if you're going to embrace diversity in the backgrounds of your trainees, then you have to be prepared that people could have a variety of experiences. And we've had folks come through whose clinical experience prior to residency didn't prepare them very well for what the challenges of residency really were. And so, you know, you get the opportunity to work with that person more closely and, you know, be the, be the guide that, that helps them reach their goals. So you talked about um, the ER scribe story, and I was curious, is there any other stories that like blew you away when you were evaluating someone? Boy, you know, a, a lot of people had, have faced all kinds of different adversity. You, you learn a lot about folks who've overcome their own medical illnesses, people who have been uh, a support for family members, lost a number of family members, had to pay their own way through school and uh, holding jobs and, and other things. So I, yeah, you see and hear about a lot of really amazing things. We're really lucky at this institution uh, that we have uh, a lot of DACA students here. And quite often, even around the country, people recognize that, that Loyola is a home uh, for DACA. And so sometimes I'll even have personal statements specifically written to us as an institution saying, you know, I, as, a, as a DACA student, I really look forward to the opportunity to train in an environment that embraces uh, us as individuals. And, you know, you get a little bit of the background story or other things. So uh, I think there's inspiration everywhere. Cool. So how do you do well on a MedPeds rotation? Or let's say I'm doing a sub-I somewhere externally. What should I do? Well, I like the external question because I get this one a lot as people are preparing for their away rotations, for example. My advice for someone who is completing an external rotation is similar to what I, I gave you guys as some tips for, uh, for success just in general. But I really think that the, the threat is to meet with a program director while you're there and almost have like a mock interview uh, with them. Because I've always advised that you should connect with program directors when you're at an institution. You're right there. You're physically present to do it. But I don't mean for you to do it from the standpoint of let me just give them my pitch and, and share information about myself and let them get to know me and ask them questions. That's, that's what the application process is for. That's what interviews are for. Instead, what I recommend to people is that as you're preparing for the away rotation, reach out to that program director or an individual that, that you have contact information for and say, listen, I have the privilege of spending a month at your institution and I really want to make the experience as valuable as possible. What are the best ways for me 
to get an understanding of what the opportunities are at your institution. Uh, for my program specifically, I would, I would encourage people to ask, are there any MedPeds-specific activities that you would recommend I participate in while I'm there to get an opportunity to interact with the residents and get a chance to see and feel, excuse me, feel uh, what the residency experience is there. So hopefully that distinction makes sense to the listeners that you really want to try to set yourself up for having a good formative experience while you're there. Now, while you're on campus, you should still sit down and meet up with those individuals. Why would you not take that opportunity? Um, But hopefully it's from the perspective of wanting to get your own best enrichment and not necessarily to throw your hat in the ring and, you know, win their favor as, as an applicant per se. Yeah. And just kind of like timeline wise. So let's say you apply for a sub I somewhere externally, you maybe email the program director or the residents or, or whoever's in charge there. Um, and kind of like how you were saying, okay, what can I do to really, engage myself in the MedPeds experience. So you do that beforehand, during, really live out the experience, feel excited for the experience, and just kind of learn how you mesh with the residents and uh, the attendings, and at the same time also kind of try and find that time to maybe interact with the program director. Is that kind of what you're getting at as well? Okay. Yep, I think that's totally reasonable. Any program director is going to understand that while someone is there visiting, it's it's. Uh, a great opportunity for them to meet us and vice versa. Um, the, the biggest thing I discourage is um, don't wait until the last day of, of the rotation to do it. I've, I, I've seen people take the perspective, well, let me just get my good understanding so then when I sit down with the program director, I can tell them what I saw. Well, the program director probably already knows about their own program. And if you really want the opportunity to demonstrate your interest, I think that's better done earlier than later. Is there any like risk of coming off too strong almost? Well, I think there is. I think that's a very real concern and we're kind of a type A bunch in general, right? So you can imagine how easy it would be for you to roll into one of these meetings with a list of 10 questions that you want to ask. And I think it's very easy for that sort of informal meetup session to turn into what really feels like a structured interview. So yes, I I would be very careful about that because that's what the interview season is for. So it sounds like you almost need a lot of emotional intelligence yourself when you're going into that interaction with the directors and your superiors, and not only just the patients that you see, but also the team that you're with as well. Yeah, you know, one of the things they uh, they put upon you guys pretty aggressively here at Stretch, I've noticed, is reflection. Um, I think before you go into one of those experiences, taking a minute to reflect, and even before you walk into that meeting, what is it that I'm trying to get out of this? What is my goal? And is that a reasonable goal for me to have so that you can be honest with yourself and maybe reframe your own expectations so that you can sort of rein yourself in a little bit and not come on too strong, but truly just just have the goal of sharing in a conversation with them. Is there any ways that you can develop or better develop your emotional intelligence? Either That's our key word <laughs> of the day, guys. Emotional you know intelligence. <laughs> Love it. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's the great thing about the concept of emotional intelligence is that it's not fixed like IQ. So EQ, they refer to it as, can definitely be developed. It takes a ton of buy-in. usually takes a lot of work. You know, your personality type can feed a lot into your emotional intelligence. Personality types are hard to change. So I have found that it usually starts with developing a good sense of self-awareness. Uh, one of the exercises that comes up time and again, if you read about improving your emotional intelligence is something that really takes a lot of confidence to do, uh, which is actually seeking out individuals from all different areas of your life, meaning a family member, a college friend, uh, a prior employer, current peers, and maybe a supervisor in some capacity, and have them all write about your strengths and weaknesses as they perceive them. And then you aggregate all of that and look to see where the common themes are and start to understand. But you can imagine the sense of humility that takes to ask your little brother to write about you and have to, you know, take that in stride. Um, but I've, I've actually had some people work through that exact exercise and, and leave it feeling um, really quite, uh, quite informed and it really opens their eyes to, to what it is that they put out there and kind of enhances their self-awareness. I think from there... There are, if you, if you look into the emotional intelligence literature, you can find any number of different exercises and activities to uh, build social awareness, to uh, develop your empathy, which is obviously a big one for us as care providers. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's out there. Thanks. That's great advice. And last question about uh, matching in the MedPeed specifically. How does one go about choosing the type of MedPeeds program that, they ultimately go into. So let's say they have a bunch of interviews. What should one look for in each interview? You know, I think there's a lot to consider. Um, and the good news is that uh, I think that in general, MedPeds programs are just awesome universally. So it's hard to go wrong. I'm going to say that right up front. But because that's true and because there's enough standardization uh, just based on the requirements that you follow to maintain your accreditation as a program, your overall experience is probably going to be quite similar from one to the next, right? It has to be transferable because that's how they, they maintain accreditation. But unique features are, are a great thing to consider and, and to recognize what, what you value most as, as a unique feature of the program. Geography is something that I really emphasize to applicants that you need to be very honest with yourself. This is not just a blink. This is four years of your life that you're spending somewhere. And you need to be realistic about what type of environment you're comfortable living in. Where's a place when we do give you those uh, occasional days off that, that you're going to be okay with wandering around the city? It might be a day when everybody else that you're friends with is working. So where what kind of places do you want to be? What are the activities you want access to? Um, how close do you need to be to family? I've already said it a couple times. Residency is hard, really hard. Um, you need a lot of support. So we like to think that ours is a program that offers a lot of great support and can create that, that feel of, of being a part of a family while you're here. But some people have very strong ties to their family. And if they're not realistic with themselves about what it would mean to have family 500 miles away as opposed to 
in the same neighborhood, um, that itself could lead to uh, big struggles. I've seen that in residency where people weren't honest with themselves about what that separation would mean or the impact it would have. Great, great. Well, thank you so much. And for our audience, what is the best way to contact you if we have any other further questions? Yeah, so I'm always happy to take emails. Uh, my account through the Loyola system is my first initial and last name. It's just N-D-E-R-H-A-M-M-E-R at L-U-M-C dot E-D-U. Uh, for the folks who are on campus here, I would just encourage you to stop me in the halls uh, whenever you see me. I'm always happy to talk medpeds or really pretty much anything, so uh, try to be as accessible as I can. I think that's uh, just about all the time we had today. We want to thank our special guest, Dr. Durhammer. Thank you so much for coming on. I bet we milked as much information out of you as much as possible. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.